Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Today, followers of Jesus around the world get together to commemorate and even celebrate that a man was executed over 2,000 years ago. Brutally executed, in fact. Why is that exactly? What is it about the death of a first century, working class, Middle Eastern man that matters, that has an impact for you and I today on the other side of the globe? And more than that, what is it about it that matters for people across the globe? Everywhere, every continent, millions of followers of Jesus across the world remember what happened on Good Friday. What makes Good Friday good enough to celebrate? That's the question I want us to explore together tonight. So I'll give you the short version of the answer first, and then we'll spend the remainder of our time working through the long version of the answer. The short version as to why Good Friday is good, why we celebrate this day today, is that it wasn't just about his death. It was about what was accomplished through his death. It wasn't just that he died It's that he died for us. Theologians have called Jesus' death on the cross substitutionary, meaning that he died, but he died in our place. That's what makes Good Friday so incredibly good to followers of Jesus. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 25 put it like this. For there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. The story of the Bible is that we, every single one of us in this room, every single one of the people in the world, that we all have sinned. We each have fallen short, every single one of us. Now, most of us have fallen short of even the types of people that we claim to be. But all of us have fallen short of the types of people that God made us to be. And in falling short, we have each caused considerable harm and hurt to ourselves, to each other, to creation, but most of all, to God himself. The reality is that no one sins in a vacuum. Every sin carries with it lasting repercussions and collateral damage to the world around us, even when we don't think it does. 
and left to our own, we will continue to cause that sort of damage day after day, hour after hour for the rest of our lives. But at the same time, what we remember tonight, what we celebrate tonight, is that God has not just left us on our own. That he sent Jesus to be, in the words of Romans 3 and plenty of other places in the scriptures, he sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins on our behalf. Now, my guess is that propitiation is probably not a word that you used in casual conversation earlier today, or maybe you did today, but most days you wouldn't, right? It's a very technical theological word. At its core, it operates out of the understanding that you and I are deserving of some sort of wrath because of our sins. Propitiation has to do at its core with the wrath of God. Now, it wasn't long ago that I would have to spend a lot of time unpacking an idea like wrath whenever I brought it up. People would just be immediately repelled and turned off by that idea that God might have wrath at all, and especially that he would have wrath towards human beings. And I think that while the idea of a wrathful God may still be a very difficult concept for some people, to be sure, I don't think wrath on its own is difficult for us to understand at all. Wrath is actually everywhere in our society today. If you take one quick look at social media or the news, you will find wrath being expressed everywhere, all of the time. People are constantly expressing their unfiltered rage towards all the things that they think are the problem with the world. You'll find wrath from the left towards the right. You'll find wrath from, from the right towards the left. Wrath from men towards women and women towards men. Wrath from the religious towards the irreligious. And wrath from the irreligious towards the religious. Wrath even from one religious tradition towards all other religious traditions. If you're paying attention, if your eyes are open, you will see wrath towards any number of different things from any number of sources all of the time in our world. Wrath is actually a regular occurrence in the world that we live in. We as human beings are aware that everything that is wrong with our world has a source. We believe that there are things wrong with our world and many of us are outraged by it and in that wrath, we demand that something be done about all of that. And that, in a nutshell, is what wrath is. It's a demand that people be held accountable for their actions. It's a cry for people to have to pay for what they've done. We constantly want something to be done about the things that we're mad about. We want to take it out on someone, whether we want to take it out on them physically or legally or just emotionally and verbally, we demand that something be done about the things that we're angry about. We want somehow, some way for it to be made right again. And things will not be okay within us until that happens, until our wrath is satisfied. So my question for you is this. If we are angry and dissatisfied with everything we see as broken and unjust in our world, doesn't God have a right to be angry about the sin that causes all of that? 
Does it really make sense that we think our anger is justified when it's not, but we don't think God's anger is justified at all? The story of the Bible is that God, too, has wrath. Romans 1.19 is one place we read about it. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, maybe some of us flinch at the mention of a wrathful God because we've been told that God is love. And that's absolutely true. God is love. But I want you to see that God's wrath is not at odds with his love, not at all. You see, love, at least true love, actually necessitates wrath. If you love something, you are going to instinctively hate anything that threatens what you love. If we love someone or something, we automatically hate anything that threatens that person or that thing. If we love our friends and family, we will hate things like COVID and cancer that threaten to destroy the people that we love. If you love peace, you will hate violence. If you love justice, you will hate injustice. This is just what love looks like at times. Loving anything will cause you to have strong emotional reactions whenever something threatens those things that you love. As the well-known saying goes, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. So here's the story of the Bible. God loves the world. God loves the world. Now, that includes the world itself. It includes the way he designed things to function within that world, and it includes the people in that world. God loves the world, and because God truly loves the world, he correctly has wrath towards anything that threatens to harm or destroy that world that he loves. Because God loves justice, for instance, he hates injustice. Because God loves people made in his image, he hates things like racism that deny the image of God in his people. Because God loves healthy, whole, functioning human beings, he hates the sin that turns us into selfish, greedy, cruel, and corrupt human beings. God has wrath precisely because he has true love. Now that said... There are some pretty significant differences between our anger, our wrath, and God's. One of them is that God's anger is slow. In Exodus 34, the first place in the Bible where God explicitly describes what he is like to human beings, it says that he is, quote, slow to anger. He's not hot-headed. He's not quick-tempered like we often are. He doesn't fire off a passive-aggressive tweet in the blink of an eye like we are sometimes prone to do. God is only ever angry at exactly the right things and in precisely the right proportion at exactly the right time. He's not angry at anything and everything that inconveniences him like we often are. He's not angry about anything that ever bothers him like we often are. He's slow to anger. That's one significant way that God's anger is different than ours. Another is that God's anger is entirely unbiased. God is not selective in the types of people that he is angry at and thinks are the problem. He thinks 
all of us are the problem. Sometimes in our own anger, we have this tendency to believe, I think, that the problem with our world is somewhere out there, right? We're the good guys, we think, and the problem is that not everybody is a good guy and there are bad guys out there doing things that are destroying the world for the rest of us. That's how we tend to think. So the problem is Republicans or the problem is Democrats. The problem is my circumstances or my upbringing. The problem is my parents' generation or the problem is the generation after me. The problem definitely is somewhere out there, right? We are absolutely tireless in our efforts to locate the problem with the world somewhere, anywhere out there but God knows much better. You see, he knows that the problem is not out there at all. The problem is in every single human heart. The problem isn't in those people, it's in us. Every single one of us, the things that we hate about the world, the things that each of us hate, the greed, the selfishness, the injustice, the entitlement, the prejudice that we hate about the brokenness of our world, all of that actually starts in here. The roots are in here. A guy named Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a Russian novelist, he put it this way, and I just think this is such a helpful image for how we think about this. He says, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. If only we could do that, right? But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? You have to know that the things we are angry about, the things that you are angry about, are not just out there, they're in here. In other words, there truly are not bad people and good people. There are bad people and then there is Jesus who came to save them all. You see, God's anger is different than ours in a number of different ways. But one similarity is that God's anger, like ours, also cries out for something to be done about it. Something must be done about the things that God is angry about. And the word that the Bible uses for what must be done about it is the word atonement. Now, atonement also might be an ancient-sounding word to some of us, but it's actually a very practical, very common-sense type of concept. You see, in life, whenever a wrong occurs, whenever any wrong occurs in any setting, atonement must be made. Whether or not we use that language to refer to it, atonement always has to be made. For example, imagine that I let you borrow my car, and while you're driving my car, you're not paying attention, and you wreck my car. My car is no longer drivable as a result. Now, to make things right between you and me, one of two things has to happen. Theologically speaking, we would say atonement has to be made. One way that could happen is that you could pay for the damage that you caused to my car. That would be you atoning for the damage that you caused. That's one thing that could happen. That's restitution, in other words. It's you paying me back for the damage that you caused. Another thing that could happen is I could say, you know what? I forgive you. I'll pay for the damages. I'll pay so you don't have to. And the word for that, theologically speaking, is propitiation. 
It's me atoning for the damage on your behalf. Me atoning for the damage that I did not cause. And that's the way that the Bible says our sin is atoned for, via propitiation. Propitiation is God atoning for our sins on our behalf. And here's why, in the situation that we find ourselves in with the God of the universe, restitution simply will not work. It's not as if you and I could just sit down and make a list of all the ways that we've sinned against God and against others going all the way back to when we were born. That wouldn't even be possible for us to do. And even if it were, how could we even begin to pay God back for that mountain of wrongs? We would spend the rest of our life trying and we would still come up short. But the reality is that one way or another there must be atonement. So what God does instead is that he sends Jesus to atone for our sin on our behalf. He makes Jesus our propitiation. We see this throughout the New Testament, always referring to Jesus' death on the cross. What Jesus' death was about was about him becoming the propitiation for our sins, about him becoming the atonement that we could not offer on our own. Isaiah 53 describes it like this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Among, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we have been healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah, speaking hundreds of years before Jesus would die on the cross, is describing both vividly and theologically what would happen on the cross. It says that on the cross, Jesus would bear our griefs and our sorrows, that he would be pierced for our transgressions. Everything that happened to Jesus was him atoning for our sin. It was him making right the wrong that we caused. It was him receiving the justice and the judgment that we deserved. That is the heart of propitiation. God subjecting himself to the wrath that we deserved. God did not hold back the justice and the judgment that was due to us, but in a twist that no one saw coming, he himself chose to endure it. That is how we can look at the gory, brutal execution of a man 2,000 years ago and ever in a million years be able to say that it is good. Because it wasn't just any death, it was a death for us. Before he took his last breath on the cross, the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus cries out these words. He says, it is finished, to telestai in the original language. Now, most of us who follow Jesus or have been around the Bible for very long, we attribute that term, that phrase exclusively to Jesus. When we hear that phrase, we think of Jesus. But what's interesting to me is that that phrase was not unique to Jesus at all. There have actually been tax records and various bills unearthed from around Jesus' time period with that exact phrase, to telestai, written on them. It is finished. 
You see, back then when you would pay off a bill or submit a tax payment of some sort, they would send it back to you and they would stamp the words on top of your record to telestai, it is finished as a way of saying, this is done, it's paid for. So what Jesus meant when he cried out those words on the cross was those words we just sang earlier. He meant that he paid our debt, that it was finished, it's done. Nothing else needed to be done to make things right between us and God. He had atoned for it. So I'm sure you've often heard people ask questions like, if God exists, why doesn't he do something about evil? If God exists, why is there so much injustice still in our world? If God exists, why does he let evil people get away with such horrible things all the time? But in the cross and the events leading up to it, we see precisely how much God hates sin, hates evil, and hates injustice. We see precisely how opposed he is to it, and we see how determined he is to do something about it. But in the cross, we also see God address that injustice in a way that only he himself could orchestrate. You see, in the cross, God turns all the forces of evil back inwards on themselves. You see, Jesus' death at a surface level simply happened because all of the unjust people and systems of his day aligned against him. If we're talking just from the flesh, that's what happened there. That's what happened to Jesus, is that all the systems and all the different people of his day aligned against him. The hypocritical religious elite, the cruel, power-hungry Roman government, and the public onlookers, many of them who were complicit in the whole process. All these various parts of society put Jesus to death by their corruption and their injustice and their indifference. But in a jarring twist, Jesus actually harnesses all of that injustice and he wields it against itself. He makes their sin its own demonstration of just how much he despises sin. He shows the world just how disgusting and broken sin is by letting that sin nail his body to the cross. He turns evil and injustice back on itself to defeat it. Ironically, the world's own sin became the means by which Jesus atoned for their sin. He uses evil against itself, and that is part of what makes Good Friday so very good as well. And in the cross, we see the length to which Jesus goes to demonstrate his love for us. There's a lot of talk about love these days how we just all need to love each other more, how the world needs a little more love in its midst. And and just to be clear, I agree with that assessment. I do think the world needs people loving one another more. But I can't help but think at the same time that when we make assessments like that and when we talk about loving each other in that way, I can't help but think that a lot of times we are defining love a lot cheaper than Jesus defined it. You see, to Jesus, love is not just feeling pleasant feelings towards someone and being kind to them when you feel like it or when it doesn't bother you or cost you too much. To Jesus, love is the length to which you will go to put the good of another person ahead of yourself. That's the definition of love. 
It's the degree to which you will be willing to suffer and be inconvenienced for another person's good. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for their friends. And if the cross is how Jesus gave up his life for us, how great is his love for us. And what we're here to remember tonight is just that, that he did all of that for all of us. It wasn't just that Jesus died, it was that Jesus died for us on our behalf to atone for our sins, to be our propitiation. It's the best news that this world has ever heard and it's incredibly good news who belong to Jesus. Tonight, we're here simply to remember and celebrate the reality of the cross, to take a long, hard look at what happened there and all that was accomplished when it happened, and then to take a long, hard look at our own lives and ask ourselves if we have received that reality. You see, it's one thing to understand what happened at the cross as an idea or as a concept. It's another thing altogether to live each and every day of your life in the wake of what happened at the cross. So it's a good night to celebrate, absolutely. And as we do that, also to investigate, to investigate our own hearts. It's a good night to, to lay all of our sins at the feet of the crucified Jesus because he made it possible for us to do just that. Maybe you're here tonight and your tendency usually is to downplay your sin. Maybe you tend to think of your sin as just a character flaw or, or some sort of small shortcoming, something you've just, you just got to work on and it'll get better in due time. But to not think of it as an offense against God. But I want you to hear that to think about our sin in that way is in essence to say that Jesus going to the cross was not necessary for us. That we could have figured it out on our own, that we could have sorted it out all by ourselves. That at the end of the day, that's all it would take and we didn't need the cross. We didn't need Jesus to go to that length. Maybe that was a great thing for him to do for other people, but we didn't need it. That's essentially what we're saying when we downplay our sin. Or maybe you're here tonight and you're sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum. Maybe your tendency is to be constantly overwhelmed by the presence of your sin. Maybe your thought is that it's all too dark, it's too heavy, it's too serious, it's too constant and too present in your life to ever not be completely defined by it. And when you think about yourself, all you see is your shortcomings. All you see is your failures. All you see is your struggles that you just can't seem to get past no matter how hard you try. And maybe your tendency is to begin to let that define who you are as a human being. But I want you to see that that too looks right past the cross and it says essentially that what Jesus did on the cross, the length that he went to for us, that it wasn't enough for you. That sin is more powerful than the cross and nothing could be further from the biblical truth at all. So I don't know what your leaning is. I don't know what your particular mindset is when you came in this room tonight and, and began to think about the cross. 
But the reality is that as a follower of Jesus, I've seen people make one of two errors. I've seen myself make one of two errors. You can ignore your sin or you can ignore your Savior. You can pretend your sin is not really all that bad or you can pretend that your sin is the thing that defines your life. And what I want you to hear me say tonight is that Jesus rescued you out of both of those. Jesus going to the cross means that neither of those realities need to find your life. I want you to understand that when God looks at you, when you are in Jesus, what he sees is a perfect son or daughter. I want you to know that God sees you through the lens of Jesus. And whatever it is in your life that feels like it defines you, it does not define you because of what Jesus did on Good Friday. And so wherever that leaves us tonight, I would just love for us to sit for a second and just just think about the reality of the cross. I, I don't want us to do either of those two things where we look right past the cross and pretend that somehow something is more important than that. What I'd love for us to do tonight is to take a long, hard look at the cross and remember all that it meant for you and me. Maybe you're in the room tonight and, and, and you've never quite heard it put like that. Maybe you're like me and you grew up in church and, and the message was something along the lines to you of, you know, Jesus did all this stuff for you, so maybe you should at least try to live for him. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus has done everything necessary to make you his, for you to belong to him, for you to be seen as holy and righteous in his sight. And it does not matter what you think about yourself. What matters is what God thinks about you. And so what we're going to do next is just spend some time celebrating that reality. I don't know what you need to do. If, if, if you want to stand and just celebrate and rejoice in that simple fact that you know how God sees you and that it's all because of Jesus, maybe your response is just to celebrate. Or maybe your response needs to be to just sit for a moment and just ask, okay, is there something in my life that I am treating as more true, as more emphatic, as more valid about me than what Jesus says about me through the cross. Maybe you just need to take a second and just ask, okay, before I sing, before I celebrate, am I living as if that's true? But whatever it is, I pray that the Spirit moves among us, that he helps us see ourselves more clearly in whatever direction that needs to go. And that through all of that, we would see Good Friday as as good as it truly is, that we would understand all that it means for us. Let me pray for us as we do. Um, Father, thank you for um, the cross. Thank you for um, sending Jesus to be our propitiation. God, thank you that everything that needed to be proven was proven. Thank you that everything that needed to be said was said. 
And that once it was said, Jesus said, it is finished. God, whatever we walked in here believing that we still needed to do in order for you to love us, God, I pray it would just fall by the wayside. Whatever we walked in here thinking that we needed to prove to you or to other people or to ourselves, God, I pray that it would just fall away. And God, I ask that by your spirit, you would help all of us, maybe for the hundredth time, maybe for the very first time tonight, that you would help us to see ourselves the way that you see us. God, would you help us not to look past the cross? Would you help us not to be defined by our failures? But God, would you also help us not to minimize them because you died for them to give us freedom from them? God, would you help us to look straight at the cross and the love that you embodied, that you put on display at great cost to yourself so that we could be called sons and daughters and citizens of a new kingdom. God, would you help us? Would you help our lives to be reflective of the realities of Good Friday? Would you do that among us now? We ask this in your name. Amen. You're welcome to sit, you're welcome to stand, whatever you want to do, but we're just going to sing some songs and celebrate the reality of the cross together.